Thanks for pressing play. Most leaders want to build a legendary business and be socially and environmentally responsible at the same time. But many get caught in a false dilemma between doing good in their business and doing good in the world. Well, there's a 70-year-old family-owned company called Dr. Bruner's Soap, and it's a quirky, beloved brand that has spent 70 years showing the world that this is a false choice. And uh, as a matter of fact, Dr. Bruner's has increased annual revenue by about uh, $200 million since 1998. So very good growth. And they've also been ranked the second highest scoring B Corp in the world. A certified B Corp is a new kind of business that balances purpose and profit. And as a matter of fact, they're legally required to consider their, the impact of their decisions on their workers, customers, suppliers, community, and the environment. Our guest today, Dr. Giro Lezon, joined Dr. Bruner's in 2005 to help lead a transition to sourcing all of its major ingredients directly from certified fair trade and organic projects. Under his leadership, Dr. Bruner's has become a pioneer in the global movement to establish socially just and environmentally responsible supply chains. And... He's got a great new book out. It's called Honor Thy Label. And one of my business heroes, a man named Yvonne Chenard, who is the founder of Patagonia and author of one of my favorite books called Let My People Go Surfing, says, and I quote, people often ask us if there are many companies Patagonia looks up to. We're proud to stand shoulder to shoulder with Dr. Bruner's for the work they've done to pioneer a socially and environmentally responsible supply chain. For the past 15 years, their special ops chief, Giro Lezon, has spearheaded these efforts. His new book is required reading for those who are serious about transforming business to help save our home planet, end quote. So if you care about building a long-term successful business that dominates its niche and makes a giant difference in the world, you're going to love everything about this conversation. My friends at NetSuite are the number one cloud ERP company. Check out netsuite.com slash different today. That's netsuite.com slash different. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, and the letter E. And if you have a different mind, <laughs> and you like different content, then go to Lockhead.com and subscribe to Category Pirates, the newsletter authority on category design. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey-ho, let's go. So how does a little-known but much-beloved soap company end up having such an impact on the world? That, that question is asked all the time, and you know, there, there's lots of answers, and I, of course, I'm a little biased, right, because the work we do has a little bit of a, of a contribution to it, and I, I don't want to get too preachy, but I, I think it has to do a little bit with somewhat of a, of a very eccentric history. If you just look at um, the way the company was founded by a very eccentric German Jewish soap maker who thought that the world could be cleaned up 
by soap, his soap, for sure. And then I think over the years since the company started, you know, some 60 years now, no, 70, I, I think it's consistency. And the fact that I believe Americans and Germans alike ultimately look for authenticity in the brands. That's what they're looking for. And most big brands are very aware of this. And they've been trying to look authentic. And we just do this in a slightly different way that's a little more credible. It's more enforceable. And I believe the causes we address speaks to a wide range of, of people. I, I don't think we're any longer the brand that just speaks, you know, to the typical Birkenstock wearing co-op customer. But I think we address more and more mainstream Americans that actually have this longing for companies just following meaning and purpose and doing something to save the planet, which is a really good idea right now. And so that's, that's part of it. I think it's also, it's the causes we support that, that do matter. And then it's, I think, just beating the drum consistently and much more high-tech than Emmanuel Bronner ever could and doing this since around 2000. It's, it's a combination. There's many other things. Of course, it's the quality of our product, no doubt. But I think it's the messaging and then it's, it's the action. It's what we do to have an impact beyond just making soap. I, I think that that package speaks to people and we have a fantastic team. Our sales team is fantastic. Marketing is great. But that's all driven by the same vision. And so here's this, you said 70 years old, right? Yep. And so how does a smaller independent company exist for 70 years. I mean, the average company in the United States doesn't live past 20. You mean that many of the companies that maybe started out like we did, that they eventually sell out, right? But then they often live on, but under, and under the same name, but, but new and improved ownership. You, you mean that, or you mean that the companies just go down? Well, the, that, ha that happens, of course. But in yeah. many cases, even if they sell the company, the brand goes away uh, in the absence of the founder or the, mm -hmm. the family of the founder or people who are much more, if you will, mission oriented. Um, when the people with the spreadsheets take over, yeah. often things don't go well. Yep. And so whether it's sold or goes out of business or becomes irrelevant because the category dies or, or there's many causes. But you folks, on the other hand, have a you know, relatively small, very niche soap business that persists uh, <laughs> for many generations now. I think part of it is that we had a very nice tailwind that started in the 90s when gradually the natural product industry picked up steam. And we were well positioned for that. For the longest time, we, we were really niche-niche. This was soap that people took to to Woodstock, I, I'd say, you know, to use a cliche. And it, it's really funny for me. You know, I'm, I'm German. I came here in 86 and I did shop at Corps, but I think I don't like reading labels. So I did not pay attention to Dr. Bronner's until the late 90s when I, start, when, I, when I met Dr. Bronner's and we started collaborating. And I still meet people here in Berkeley where I live where they say, oh, my parents always use Dr. Bronner's. And 
some people thought it was cool. Some of them were turned off for a while until they met me. So there's a history, right? There's an underground history in certain quarters of the uh, of the population. And I think what drove people back then came back in a more modern version. The shift to organic agriculture, for instance, organic uh, products was one of them. The idea that companies should take more responsibility for what they do. It started coming up in the 90s. So I think these are some of the external factors. So it's great product design, the desire, you know, to have more natural, more sustainable ingredients and products came up. And that was part of the tailwind. But I really believe what drove it most is the the consistency in this family-held business to to live up to their value i know that sounds cheesy right and everybody's going to claim the same i just happen to know i work very closely i know their management i'm I'm part of their their upper management and what amazes me is that this idea that you should use a company to bring about positive change that has never left the company i've been watching it last year in particular we had a fantastic year 2020 it was corona driven and you may you may know how we afford to support so many causes. It's simply the way profits are handled. So there is no payout of dividend to the family for personal purposes, number one. And number two, their salaries are capped. So what usually is done by profitable companies, that much of that profit in a way goes into either very high salaries or bonuses. And we just don't do that. So if we make extra money, there's just a lot of things that we support and it was just fun to watch that late last year how much money there were millions that were distributed to ballot initiatives for instance or the causes we supported we just ramped that up and does everybody know that no i don't think most consumers are clear about it but what's really fascinating is that our growth has been consistent so we've been adding 10 to 15% in revenues per year ever since I joined in 2005. So what's that consistency? It's gradually going into mainstream, and I believe convincing people of what we do, speaking to them, even outside of our you know, historical territory. So I think, again, that helped us as far as the family goes. You will just see a rather mixed group of people with different faith different convictions, but all driven by this crazy idea that companies can make a change. Now, is that strong enough? No, it isn't. It comes down to cash flow. So I've watched that, right? We've had times where cash flow was really tight, but there is this determination never to bring in outside investors because that immediately cuts you off from the opportunity to do with your money what you want. And if you are David Bronner, and you really like spending a few millions a year on helping promote and legalize the use of psychedelics for psychotherapy, which is somewhat of an uncommon cause, which just, you know, Unilever just doesn't put too much money in. If you're interested in that, you are not going to get outside investors because there's a risk they may just at some point say, you know what, I don't think this is looking so good. Let's put more money into the breast cancer fund. And that they just don't want to do that. And all of them, they all have their pet projects, but it's that that really brutal insistence on independence that drives it. And then having to respond to 
the fact that money is tight and that you need to improve relationships with the bank. And somehow they did all the right things and they were not interested in massive growth, which is maybe something that many of our uh, fellow companies do. They go for big growth initially while they take off and then very soon they run into cash flow trouble and then it's time to bring in new investors and then eventually sell out. For us, this is not about cashing out, getting a few millions in the bag and then retire and just sit on the board of philanthropic organizations. The Bronners, as I know them and most of our executive team, just love being able to make decisions. And bring about change. And that drives me a lot. This is the biggest fun ever. I could retire, but that would be so boring. It's just so much fun to use your business to bring about change, honestly. <laughs> well, I've experienced it myself. So I know this joy that you're talking about. Yep. And that independence, there's a real value to that that I think maybe some entrepreneurs are not too aware of. And so maybe tell me about this. Where does this fierce independence come from? I really think it goes back to the grandfather, to old Emmanuel. He was just a very eccentric person, made it out of Germany in 29. He he saw things coming, and frankly, he probably had a falling out with his father. A a German, well-established German Jewish soap maker, Emmanuel, saw anti-Semitism rising, and, and I think they just didn't get along. And so he did what many other people have done. He just took off for the United States. And and there I think he smelled freedom. Germany at the time was not what it's now. Right? Germany was a somewhat restricted country, in particular where he lived. And I think to realize that he can just go out and just engage in the most outrageous behavior, meaning he just uh, founded associations with the purpose to change the world. He just took on crazy ideas. And that's what the U.S. sometimes does to people. And I enjoyed part of it, right? This is in part why I'm why I'm here. And I think he did that. And then there was personal tragedy that hit. His parents were killed by the Nazis. And there was nothing. No, they actually, he and his sisters tried hard to get them out. And they slipped away in the very last moment. This was just after Pearl Harbor. I think that was traumatic. Then his wife died. And he, I think, took it on to save the world. And, and he meant it. I've read much of his correspondence. It's in German. And we have an archive that collects much of it. And he was, let's just say he was really eccentric and determined to pursue gold. And he did this until his very end. By that time, his son and daughter-in-law had taken over. They were better business people than he. he they actually knew how to pay taxes and, um, and make sure there was a... The government really accounts on us to do that, I'm told. They, they were, and, and old Emmanuel, he, for the longest time, he tried to run the company as a church. And that in the end, <laughs> in the, end the, IR, the IRS disagreed with it. So, so he, had, he was just the most unusual... Self. The Church of the Latter-day Soap? Or? I forgot what it, what it was called. I, think <laughs> they, I, I don't know the name anymore. He, he tried. And it, it didn't work, so they were stuck with a pretty sufficient, uh, pretty significant tax debt. His kids helped resolve the, the issue in the end. But it's, I think it's that determination to do what you think is, is right. And that you see in his grandsons, Mike and David, who run the company now. And you see that in his daughter-in-law, Trudy, who's still the CFO, and helped with her husband, her late husband, 
to put the company on firm foundations. And I think it's that idea that you're not going to have anybody that can just force you to do things just because they own a majority share in the company. They, they just, they, they don't like doing that. And you and I may just appreciate it. And they were just lucky enough. This is, I think, what happened. They came up to 6 million revenues, you know, in the 70s and 80s. And they didn't go far beyond that. But at least there was a foundation. There was a recognition that they could build on. So when David and Mike came on in the late 90s, 2000, and they, they had to think, am I going to join the family company, which is often a burden? They thought, no, this is an opportunity. And they looked at that company as some as a vehicle. And David, by that time, already had experimented with just a whole different approaches to live and had spent some time in Amsterdam, which sometimes does some does have some permanent impact. And that's that's what happened. And I know him really well. He just <laughs> is determined to pursue the goals he has, very reflected, work it out with the family, what the priorities are. But I really think, and you know what? I think this is pretty human, right? This this drive towards independence and making your own decisions. I I actually think it's pretty human. Just remember one time, this was years ago in LA, in the radio, on the radio I heard on NPR, a happiness expert speaking. And the one thing I remember is that he said, what makes people happiest in jobs, if they have the freedom to make their own decisions. And I can I can sure confirm this, what I like most about my job, not, not most, but one thing I like, I have a very, very long leash. I'm employed, but I'm director in four companies, and I mostly inform Browners on what I do, but I hardly ever request permission. I don't have to do that because there's a huge amount of trust, and what drives me is, in part, the freedom to create company, a little empire of companies across the globe that buy from farmers, produce something, employ two, three hundred people. I really think this is the biggest fun of all. So it's it's that ability to make your own decisions and follow what you think are good values. Honestly, this is how they tick. And I think it's pretty human from from all I I know, Christopher. I think this is what drives people. And I just see that energy not just with the Browners, but I see it in the entire executive team, whether it's the people who run PR or marketing or sales, they all think what we do matters. You know, selling and advocating soap is a cool thing that will save the planet. And, if, and that, that's somewhat of an, of an arrogance, but it's, it's a nice one to have. This is what's driving me. Well, and it comes across in sort of, it appears almost everything the company does. I mean, first of all, your packaging and branding is very iconic. And you have these these these, these war and peace novels <laughs> on your labels of all this information you're sharing with us as consumers, and it's it's a very plain looking packaging, but yet it's very distinctive at the same time. And it's clear that you're on a mission, but there's also a bit of a whimsical. And uh, look, you're in Berkeley, right? There's a there's a bit of berserkly going on here, right? I mean, on your website, you talk about your cosmic principles. <laughs> That's just me, Christopher. I, I live up here. Production is, is down south where 
I, um, I'm not going to move. I lived in Los Angeles for 10 years. That was long enough. So there's some berserkly, but the company is infused with berserkliness. And many people live in Portland. It feels like everybody's a little berserkly. <laughs> most, most are, but then there is a lot of normality too. If you ever get to visit, it's not that far. No, you're in Santa Cruz. If you ever get to visit, there is just this wild mix of normality because we run production. Most of our staff run in production, and it's a super well-organized production with a good spirit. But they're like super well-organized, like I would expect a good German heritage company to be. <laughs> I wasn't going to bring it up, but yes, it's, it looks like this. There's an upstairs conference room, and you look down at production, and over time, I've watched it. Initially, there was just a lot of manual Bottling, for instance, most of that is automated. It's super well organized. We even in the back have our own refinery to refine palm oil and coconut oil and olive oil that we bring in from our projects and partners. It's a super well organized operation. We just had to add second or third shifts this year. And so you have a whole sense of normality there. But then it, it's really fun when we have international meetings with our international distributors. We call it symposium. And then they're greeted by this big fire truck and the Magic Foam Experience team that look like they had just brought a piece of Burning Man right to North County, San Diego. And it's just such a wild contrast, right? The normality contrast, it was just the most eccentric but, but enjoyable behavior, the colors all include its design, it's how people are. It's just a real wild contrast and I've, I've come to and most people respond to it very well so you bring in all these distributors and they're the most normal people and they all behave like they had drunk the kool-aid it's and i'm not making up it's really fun to watch normal people respond to this and i sometimes bring in the chiefs of our projects and they're you know very normal people and they come there and they say hmm there's a very interesting great atmosphere here and they, they feel it. it's just the way people behave. At the same time, though, Michael Milam, our chief of operations, says, I have to make soap. And that's what they have to do. So it's that very unique contrast of normality, efficiency, planning. And at the same time, you have a, a, a wildness and independence driving the whole show. Very, very unique. I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, it seems like... Um you know, you you hear of companies that are zany and creative and what have you, um, and that's the core tenant of their company. Um, but they don't tend to be known as precision, uh, well-oiled machines necessarily. You know, maybe a creative agency or something along these lines. And then, and then you think about a production, manufacturing, distribution, a very analytical precision, quality measurement, uh, complex supply chains, all of those things that you have. And it's it's as though you've got two sides of a very different brain in the same body. And so I guess what what can you teach me about how do how do you create a culture where you run a precision machine, you deal with complex value chains and suppliers and customers and distributors and all of that stuff. And yet um, there's lots of room for creativity and, and, and wackadoodle. Boy, that's that's tough because there's until now there have been no rules to insist that at least 20% of all new hires have to be crazy. But there's, there's, there's no such quota. Some of it is history. So if you look at the management... Unlike diversity quotas, you don't have a crazy quota? That no, you're going no, for. no, we don't. And it's not true. What some people say is that everybody 
who applies has to take a drug test and unless the, the test comes out positive, they get hired. That's not true too. So we have a, a diversity <laughs> and most people are normal. So what's different? Uh, some of it is the history of the company. So a few in the upper management team, including myself, we've met David through his early activism in industrial hemp. And what that meant is, uh, it, it's it's it, it's history, but it involved that under David's fearless leaderships, members of the the then um, budging hemp industry in the late nineties sued the Federal Drug Enforcement Administration because they thought foods that contain hemp seeds would have to be banned. They were as bad as heroin, so they wanted to schedule them, which was was not real there was no no justification for any of this i had done research i'm a scientist by training so i've done research and showing that there's no impact on on um on urine tests for marijuana which were very popular in the in the 90s and there were a few other companies that just joined forces and some of them ended up in the the management at dr Bronner. so th there's that that spirit came with us but it's only part of it. There's other issues have to do more with, I think, managing people. And there's, there's a couple of aspects that really matter. Number one, responsible behavior towards your, your staff. Everybody does. Everybody says they do that, right? But you look at Dr. Bronner's and it's, it's a little off the charts, particularly for the U.S. So we all have, for instance, um, no deductible health care. Now, that is somewhat unique, right, to, to have. So there's on that front, the security, wages are fair, and particularly on the lower end, that generates a lot of loyalty. Did you say wages are on the lower no, end? No, sorry. No, no. The, the lower part of our scale is actually relatively, relatively high. I see. So if I were a mid to lower level employee, yeah. I would make more with you than I yeah. would in a comparable position. In, in particular, else. people who work in production in the warehouse. They're, they're higher than comparable wages in the, in the neighborhoods. And then there's a cap. There's a five-to-one cap for the company's owners. So five-to-one compared to the lowest salary that a, a permanent worker in production or the warehouse gets, right? That's pretty narrow. That's a very narrow cap, and that's ultimately what generates a lot of money, too. It's a tremendously narrow uh, yep. gap. I, I can't remember what the number is now, but I remember for years – Ben and Jerry's made a point of saying it was some small, reasonable sounding ratio. And of course, now they're sold and so forth and yep. so on. And it's no longer the case. But I seem to remember sort of a lot of companies feeling like a 20 to one ratio would be hard to attract the right kind of executive talent. And so if yep. you're saying, you know, the lowest level person in the company to make the math super simple was going to make $100,000 a year, which is probably not the case, but nope. just stay with me on simple math, then the most the senior folks could make would be half a million dollars a year. And so the reality is your executive team is making less than $500,000 a year. They do. I would know. And I know them all. And they've got nice houses, but nothing too fancy. And they just live lives that are I'd say overall pretty happy because they're part of the sh of a show that just receives respect from all over. And, and again, they all operate in different areas. Some are active in their church. David Bronner has a rather unique agenda. And so they all receive most, I think, of their satisfaction and happiness, not from the extra money they make, but from 
what they they do and the satisfaction you get from it and that's just the way it is and it's it's really you're right usually people talk about say in, in switzerland i heard there was a, a ballot proposition a, a year or two back to narrow the gap to it might have been 12 to 1 or so and that flopped so 5 to 1 is really narrow but good enough 5 to 1 is insane in the united states today i mean if you compare Fortune 500 CEOs, I mean, and to the best of my understanding, I don't have the data in front of me, but that ratio gap has been widening and widening over time. What we pay, you know, there's plenty of CEOs who make uh, $50 million a year or more. You do, and the story is you have to pay that much to attract them, and I just think there's something wrong. (laughs) I think there's something wrong with a company if you have to pay that much to get people to perform on the highest level. Our, Our management team, they, like me, they're just operating all the time. We're workaholics. And that'll have to be discussed at, at some point. But they perform on the highest level in just different arenas. And I just watch the accomplishments. But they're fine with a five to one. So I think motivation can be generated in, in many different ways. And I just like the way Dr. Brauners does that. that. That spirit, you can see that on the floor. Not to say that there wouldn't be conflicts, right? No, there, there's... I don't want to glorify anything. It's just normal in in any company that there are conflicts, but just the way even conflicts are dealt with, I think is helped by the fact that ultimately most people subscribe to the idea that this is sort of a boat we're all in and there's no good reason to fight over who gets to row the boat too much, right? There's There's some of that and you have that in any hierarchy, but not as much. Yes. I've worked in environments that are like that. And it's a very big difference when you feel like there's a group of committed people. We're all very clear what the mission is. We're all very clear what the objectives are. We generally know what our roles are, but things, when things are aligned at the goals and mission level, the roles can be fairly fluid. We each understand, you know, if I, if I'm running marketing and you're running operations and someone else is running sales. We all understand that stuff, but it's like, you know, Navy SEALs explain this to me that when they do an operation, who's in charge can be very fluid moment to moment. And I, I see that in legendary businesses. It's, I'm, I'm glad you bring this up. This is another part that I find most enjoyable about my work, but I think it's also somewhat indicative. So we produce essentially the raw materials for the company, right? So I have founded and operate several companies in Ghana, Sri Lanka, and India, and in Samoa that make our raw materials. Why? Because we wanted raw materials that have positive impacts both socially and ecologically, let's say. And organic and fair was the formula we used first. Now it's regenerative agriculture because it also includes focus on soil fertility. And that was my job to get this started. So in a way, I'm a supplier of raw materials to the company. These sister companies are owned by Dr. Bronze, so they also have to flourish. But for me to bring in materials into the company requires that I work with operations, with quality control. We generate stories that Dr. Bronner's now more and more uses. And for that, you need to be able to work closely with marketing and with PR. And you better are good friends with the sales department too because they sell a story. So what I learned really early on, you have to work across all department lines and I don't report to anybody and nobody reports to me. So you have to work out the terms of your collaboration. And I love the concept of cross-pollination 
I love to tell stories and some of my favorite appearances are we've got these annual sales and marketing meetings and I give to all staff updates on what we're up to at our projects. And it's just nice to have a group of fans that just think, wow, those are cool stories that you're telling. And then it just makes it much easier for me to also work with quality control. So you have to develop your relationships with people and it's regardless of your status in the hierarchy. I, I don't fit in the hierarchy in a way. There is hierarchy in production, but it, to me, I have to negotiate this. This almost you need to figure out what the rules are, how do you deal with finances, etc. But that to me is one of the great things about Dr. Brown is, is that you negotiate collaboration across department lines and it forces you to be collaborative. Unique. Many other big companies tend more to create departments and silos and then often there's war in between it which is one of the most destructive i think features in big companies is that there is just a lot of internal friction not to say we don't have internal friction far from it but i believe it's much much less than in larger structures well and the thing i'm fascinated by with your job is this notion of power and i've experienced this shift throughout my professional life that's a topic I've studied. There's been a lot of great work done on the types of power. Mm -hmm. And in business, many people are seeking what is often referred to as positional power. So when you're the CEO or you're a C this or a whatever, mm -hmm. with that position comes certain power. You know, so last time I was a chief marketing officer, I had a multimillion dollar budget. I could sign off on an expense up to a million dollars without without a, a separate uh, mm -hmm. a name approval on it. I could hire and fire as I saw fit, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when when we achieve positions that have positional power, you know, people are going to do stuff because you're the boss, and if you don't, you're not going to get your bonus. You're going to get fired or whatever whatever the thing is, right? Because the person with positional power sort of governs to some degree, the life of the people who don't have that position, positional power. When you move out of roles like that and your only power sort of in air quotes is to your point, how you collaborate, the quality of your ideas, how much people want to include you in their work, the stories that you tell that, that, that endear you to them, that, that make other people in the organization say, hmm, that's a guy I need to spend more time with. Or one more. And so in my career, I've had this experience. Today, I have virtually no positional power in anything. And it is a joyous thing to have no positional power. And the only, quote, power you have is your presence, your reputation, your brain, and your ability to communicate, collaborate, and interact with other people. And so I'm curious, in your job, you've done so much. You've started companies. You, 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 you've revolutionized the supply chain. Um, and you did it all without positional power in a traditional sense. How do you it's, do that? <laughs> it's, it, what you just said is, is, is one of the, the foundations, I think, of, of our work. And I do have positional power. So I'm a director in four companies, but really early on, I realized that if you start smallholder projects in Ghana or Sri Lanka, it doesn't matter what positional power you have. You don't get shit done unless you convince people and are willing to get your hands dirty. And the biggest force 
and you would know is motivation. Unless you motivate people to come along and you justify what you do, you don't stand a chance when outside temperatures are always in the 80s and there's no air conditioning. You don't get people to come along at all. And I learned this early on, and it's been the biggest joy. And I've got the, the same with my department is really a team of, of eight people that are all over the world. Th those are all white guys. This is my special operations team that supports the project on the ground. So there's two Americans, actually one of them lives in Spain. There's three Germans now, or four, and there's a Brit. They're all over. We all have home offices. We hardly ever meet, definitely not during uh, Corona. We meet at the projects. And I'm their boss, but it's completely flat. I really don't like forming departments because I don't believe in positional power. I really think the power is mutual motivation and collaboration. Now, that all sounds nice and well. You still have to do that in an environment where I tell you, your potholes on the roads get in the way of almost anything, poor Skype connections all the time. Things don't work. The supplies of this and that and the other thing are not available. So you constantly have to deal with non-traditional problems, things that you don't have the same way here in the United States. The only way you can solve those is not by yelling at people and say, get this done, because it won't. You have to figure out how to do it, and you better do this with good spirit. And again, none of this worked immediately. And all of our projects, what we're doing right now is that that's classical Western thinking, I guess, is team building, leadership building, but it works amazingly well. Because in developing countries, oftentimes hierarchies are lousy and dysfunctional, right? So you have bosses who think they, they can use their positional power to get shit done. It doesn't work, though. And this is in part why some countries have room for improvement. And what we bring there is a rather modern approach that's really flat and it's collaborative. It requires that there's a few people who have spirit and actually subscribe to your notion that companies can bring about change. And that hasn't always worked. We had a couple of people who gave high priority to money. And we had to split. And we had fraud too. So ultimately, over time, you build teams that understand the power of motivation. And motivation meaning being able to develop their local community, for instance. And the, the funniest part of this is Ghana. I really like our project there, Surrender Palm, Mixed Palm Oil, now Cocoa. And it's, it's mostly unskilled labor or semi-skilled labor, some 250 people now, and there's 20 professionals, agricultural engineers, engineers, HR, accountants. And most of them we hired from the city and where we are in Assume. It's it's the middle of nowhere, right? It's a small town, 10,000 people. We're the largest employer. There's no restaurants. There's no movie theaters. There's, n there's nothing for entertainment. One decent bar. And all of these people we've managed to hire, we had no turnover the last 10 years. They actually all start marrying and having kids, and they're not going away. So what does that tell you? It is my favorite story, and it's true. They stick around because they've got standing in their community. They think it's really cool that we address the issue of rural poverty in their country and we pay fair salaries and there isn't much else to do in, in that neighborhood. And I, I think it demonstrates just how you can motivate people even under somewhat dark conditions to do that. So motivation is really my one word and positional power. I 
rarely use. I, I make decisions, right? Sometimes there's, you know, with, with the team you develop, op- you talk about options. And I'm relatively fast in making decisions, and I really like it. But I can go back on it in a minute if somebody convinces me that what I'm saying is nonsense. And that, I, I like that kind of approach to things. So I really don't want to play boss too much. There's a need maybe to make decisions. But this positional power is way overrated. I could not put up. I could not imagine having an incompetent boss. I'd rather just kill myself. And I, I don't know how people deal with this. I think positional power is overrated. And um, I think when you have a committed team where people generally understand their roles, and to your point, I think yep. there needs to be a decider on critical things. Yep. If the team can't come to a decision or if there's a natural decision flow that it flows to a certain person who says, in the end, yes, we ship this product or whatever the whatever decision is the final decision we're talking about. So all that makes sense to me. I don't think we should have anarchy, but there is an incredible thing when a group of people who don't give a shit about positions and titles and all that, and what they do give a shit about is doing legendary work that makes a difference and they get focused on that and the handoffs just naturally can occur. Yeah, we're, we're on the same page and this works in almost any setting. So all these countries are different and everybody makes a big deal about paying attention to different cultures. And yes, absolutely, of course you do that if you work in different cultures. It would be stupid not to. But I always say people really aren't all that different. Most people laugh about the same jokes. That, that's a really good sign, I, I find. And most people want to be humble. And, you know, there's increasing scientific evidence that most people are actually good and they really don't want to kill each other. This has been somewhat of an, an, an oversell of of the idea that people, as soon as they can, they want to kill each other. It's, that's not really what the evidence says, and your personal experience will tell you that. So you just want to make use of that basic willingness of humans to collaborate, get some stuff done, and have some fun in the end. I, I, it's really simple, I, I think. And just right now, it's not the hottest theory on the market, but I see it coming back, and I kind of enjoy it. It feeds into what we do. It's, it's just collaboration, agree on goals, and have everybody more or less reasonably satisfied and not just beat up on individuals and, and torture them, right? That's just not a very good approach to humanity. So that's <laughs> that's our credo, and you don't even need a faith for it. You know, you can agree on that foundation across this, the other nice thing. We've got people from four to five to six different religions on our projects, and we don't even make too much of a, of a big deal about it. It just, it's almost, it, it's just rather natural. You just argue on substance you know there's political differences and you you may disagree on that but i think there's a a common drive that's the part i really enjoy that i I used to be communist now this was way back 40 years ago in in germany i thought yes there needs to be communism capitalism really sucks and it's got some problems for sure but i i've come to think most of it is more basic and there's no need for dogmatism it's just dealing with issues at hand and and pursuing something as simple as making good soap and then just, you know, see how it all works out, but behave properly in the process. It, it sounds trivial, but it's, it's not. It's a lot of work. Well, and I, everything about what you folks do is um, the opposite of a lot of the 
I call them hustle porn stars. You know, there's all this sort of entrepreneurial garbage today and everybody's talking about the latest hustle and the, the latest hack and yep. how do we do this and do that. And everybody's looking for a quick tip and a quick way to get big fast and all of this sort of stuff. And, yep. and there you are, 70 years later, 10 to 15% a year, you know, family uh, run. You remind me a lot uh, from an ethos point of view of a company like Patagonia. Mm-hmm. We, I believe we are, and you may know, we work with them rather closely. Different business, but similar drive on the, um, on the management level and by the company's founder. And you, you may know, we, we have a close collaboration with them on the development of this regenerative organic standard. Even most of what they do isn't exactly agricultural as far as raw materials go, but they're adding foods, are shifting more towards that, and we're strong allies in promoting uh, regenerative agriculture here and in tropical countries. And there's a lot of similarity in, in what drives us. And it's it's the old man who I think set the tone a little bit. And I, I in don't both know companies, well. it sounds like. <laughs> it, yeah, it's it's like that. And he he's older. You see him on on stage, and he says. Boy, if we cannot fix the planet's problems, then we messed up. And and he means it. It's not so easy to do that, but those are his aspirations too. And there's a few companies like us that are willing to put their money where their mouth is. None is as extreme as Dr. Braun. So this is where I I put a picture and say we're we're pretty crazy. So we put seven percent, I think, of revenues into activism and philanthropy pretty broad um, portfolio of, of things we, we do support. And that doesn't even include the fact that we afford ourselves more expensive raw materials, such as the ones from our projects. There's fair trade premiums in there. We pay better prices to farmers. That's not even included. All the salaries of my team, which essentially were service providers to our own projects and to others. But so we support companies we don't own, and we don't even get a cut for it. Why do we do this? Because it's fun, number one. Number two, we don't pay. We don't do paid advertising. Now, here I'm. I'm not an expert. You would know better. I, I think paid advertising is pretty expensive. I think much of that money goes into things that are more meaningful, and we do word of mouth advertising really well. We've got a fantastic PR department, and um, it helped me write the book, for instance. Right? It's it's really PR, but it's PR. It's true. It's not just making the stories up, but it's rather talk about what you do in an intelligent and, and, and truthful manner. So we're a little extreme. And actually, we, I wish there were more companies like us. I really think it's doable. And I wish that kind of atmosphere and spirit would become more common. And I would love capitalism even more than if that was the case. We, we call it constructive capitalism. I think capitalism is okay, but it's got a couple of real nasty flaws to it you know not not enough attention to those at the bottom and the united states is, is a, a little weak maybe we shall say in terms of paying attention to those at the bottom the the, the protection of people isn't that great and i i wish we could transform capitalism and make it a little more like what we do you know 10 percent of the economy i think there would be a critical mass so that's one of the dreams. I'm, I don't think I'm going to see it happen before I check into my next life. But who knows? You know, there's there's always the future. 
I, I think we might. Um, and it it's interesting, you know, this topic of mission-driven, conscious capital, conscious venture capital, double bottom lines, triple, all the, whatever words you want to put around the idea that a company is more than just its earnings per share or more than its, its, its annual or quarterly profits, that people work at companies and people live in the world and we live with each other and, 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 and we need to have a broader perspective. Um, This is not a topic I necessarily thought I sought out. It was something I always believed in, Mm -hmm. but it shows up here a lot. Mm -hmm. And the data shows that the younger you are, the more this matters to you, that you want to buy from conscious companies. You want uh, the the position a brand takes on a social or environmental issue impacts what people will buy. And so at about 40 years old, if you look at the market data, things start to tilt very heavily towards companies that are trying to do something more. In addition, what I would share with you is a lot of the younger entrepreneurs I talk to, this is their headset. This is where they start. They start the business with this as a foundational element. So look, I might be a little Pollyannish. I may have lived on the West Coast a little too long. But it appears to me there's a real emerging thinking that says that businesses need to make a difference in the world and that difference can't just be measured on an economic basis. I agree 200%, Christopher. And back to your original question, I think that's some of the drive behind our success. I really think that Dr. Bronner's practices, what speaks to those aspirations, and you're right, it's, it's younger people. And you know what? It's not just Americans. I, I'm in Germany a lot, and I speak with younger Germans quite a bit. And they say the same. Not all of them, but many are just driven by the same. And then you go to Sri Lanka and Ghana and elsewhere, and it's the same. Once you get to talk to people, it's the same thing. It's the the obsession with status symbols and and money is is overrated. Most people really care more for what we do. There may be differences in the kind of cars they would like to drive and and things like that. But I, I think really maybe there is a there is a shift that people more recognize companies can play that role. And that's what drives many of the startups. Two, as you say, it's problematic to survive in a, in a rather brutal market. Oftentimes, people make mistakes, and they may have the best aspirations, but they may not have the wherewithal. They may not have the money to do it. They have to bring in capital. All these things get in the way of it. But you're right, that drive is there. And I believe a big Part of what Dr. Bronner's does is to show you can do that. Not trying to quote anybody here, but it's it, it's really that it's part of it. We want to be a role model to show that you can actually use a company to do the most outrageous things. You still have to be smart and run a business and can't spend all of your money um, without thinking about it and have structure and organization and accountability and all these minor issues. All that needs to be addressed. Too. So in that way, we're a roadmap, but you're right. I think we speak to people who would like for capitalism to reform, not necessarily to give up on the concept of private ownership. That, that's not going away, and I, I actually don't mind it, even though our company is thinking of, are we always going to be privately held? Should we put it into a foundation, rather? There's issues like this. You want to think about mm-hmm. succession, for instance. 
Germany and a whole bunch of companies that now own themselves. So this issue of private ownership is being addressed. I don't mind so much as long as it's done responsibly. I, I think having people that lead is not a bad thing. Ownership maybe entitled you to that as a German leadership was just a real bad word. It translates into Fura. And so for the longest time, you couldn't use the word. I don't mind. I think leadership is a good thing as long as you're responsible. So I think it speaks to the, that demographics you, you mentioned. There are people who just think business should be responsible for improving things. And the big guys know this too. They spend more money on doing surveys and having consultants tell them that, and it's reflected in their propaganda, in their annual reports, etc. I only wish the shareholders would recognize this, right? It's, it's this, this constant excuse, well, there's certain things we can't do because we have to maintain shareholder value. And it's an annoying thing with public companies. And that's we don't have to do that, right? We, we're only responsible ourselves for what we do. We can't blame anybody else. And that, that's what I really yes. love about small or medium-sized companies that are owned by families or a small group of people. Yes, and it goes back to your comments off the top about authenticity. Yep. You can decide. You're not just doing this stuff because it's the uh, cool thing because uh, McKinsey told you that Generation yep. Y wants to hear this stuff. Yep. This is a 70-year-old commitment yep. for you folks. It, it it is it is and that's I'm I'm super annoyed by propaganda I I, mean, I can smell it you know when it, when it comes out of the, I, I used to be a consultant environmental consultant and worked for large companies and I've just watched how they present themselves and I can understand it all it just annoys me because it's often not truthful and big companies often do good things and they they're tight they have their hands tied oftentimes right so i want to give big companies credit and i'm not the one who always kicks nestle and everybody else because i understand the the environment they work in but it also makes me think these guys aren't going to change the world until there's a little more pressure usually it's green and fair washing that they put out but you also see them try things right i i always i um i watch with glee that nestle tries to do things about their cocoa supply not very successfully because at the same time they play along with global trade and, and just give in, right? So I'm, I've got mixed feelings about it, but they watch this for sure. They, they know that those are their consumers and they have to serve their, their needs. And when the average consumer understands uh, what horrible environmental uh, as well as economic damage is done by harvesting palm oil, mm -hmm. by way of example. Mm -hmm. That's a very shocking thing. I remember the first time I learned it when my friends at the World Wildlife Foundation yep. told me what a horrible industry that is. And so when a company like yours says, hey, wait a minute, we're going to take responsibility for our entire supply chain yep. and the people in it and the world, and we want, in this case, palm oil, that is uh, harvested justly and that isn't destroying yep. the environment and the people that are doing the work are actually being treated fairly and compensated and so forth. That's a hell of a statement. And once you make that statement, you can't go back on it because if somebody comes and pokes around and you're not really doing it, your entire business is going to fall apart. So once you say you're committed to something like that, you got to get on the plane. You got to go, go get schooled on palm oil, don't you? You're right. You can't go back. And that's why Big companies are so reluctant. I watch the palm oil show, of course. I'm very aware how most palm oil is made. We just do it very different, right? We buy from smallholders, and oil palm is a fantastic crop. 
it's always my joke when I give presentations. I say, what's your problem? Palm oil is a fantastic product. It just depends on how it's made. It's not the plant. It's how it's made. And if you knock down 20,000 acres, burn them down, and then just plant the monoculture, well, then no surprise that things aren't so good for orangutans. And I've been watching big companies positioning themselves to show that at least their oil is a little more responsive, and it actually is. There's some awareness. But it's a far cry from what we do. And they can't really go back and become really extreme. Number one, our, our oil is our joke. It's the most expensive palm oil on the planet. And it's just the way we produce it, right? There's just a lot of manual labor involved and we don't scale as much. And so we have had big companies check in and they're just not going to engage because number one, there's cost implication. Number two, as you say, once they start doing this, it's really difficult to go back and say, oh, no, you know what? This was just a little expensive. We go back to the dirty old way we used to do it. So it's I, I'm glad we're not big companies and we can just say, no, this is wrong. We're not going to do this. Or we say, well, we'll do this over the next five years as we can afford it. But it's moving forward. Stepping back is really not an option for, for us. And I, I really like that. That's very motivating. Yes, you're talking to somebody who has a small business of his own. And last year, we decided to donate 100% of our revenue. Whoa, that, hang on, that, there's, that doesn't leave much money for profit. No, we had no profit. And, you know, uh, I have a, a very small business focused on uh, uh, media, podcasting and writing yep. and uh, consulting and investing. And um, last year, my wife, Carrie, and I, as the year started to play out, by the time we got to about the midway point in the year, we said, there's never been a year like this in our lives. Nope. And if we don't do everything in our power, um, and it's not just about giving money, it's we tried to do things in our community and yep. you know, many things we tried to get done last year yep. uh, as it relates to the virus, as it relates to social issues, yep. things I know you folks were all over. but. Um, we, you know, you can make that decision when it's your business. You can say, well, this year, every dime we make is going to go to the world because we can't sit here and watch people starve and we can't sit here and watch our hospitals not have the right equipment they need and, and so forth and so on. Yeah. Um, you, you appreciate, I, I know, you appreciate where we're coming from and there's no bigger joy than in a situation where there's an urgency, just pick up some money and get something that we had this in, in India, this is the, the one COVID story I, I want to mention, I'll do it really brief. So as the whole planet was shutting down, we just watched out for those of the projects that would be hit hardest. And the first one was India, where we've got some 2,500 farmers. And I asked the guys on the ground, keep an eye on those groups that are most affected. So lockdown came, what happened, there were 4,000 farm workers who usually are landless and they work on the farms of the farmers who grow or mint and they had no there's no welfare system in india to speak of and they couldn't go to the field because the government banned it so these people were without savings number one and number two without income and we organized and this was a decision of a minute we just checked out what are we going to do we run food supplies and we had we got trucks and everything infrastructure on the ground and I asked the Bronners uh, to give us 25 grand immediately. And then you just start buying food. So this was lentils, sugar, flour, oil. And we had three distribution runs, so 25 grand. So we served the needs of around 4,000 people plus family until they could get, go back to the field. And to just pull off guerrilla-style actions like this 
is, is what we like. Just very direct action with the money you have, as you described. You just look what the needs are and then you act. No bigger fun. And these weren't even employees. These were no. employees of, of farmers you buy from. Yep, exactly. They're, they're two levels away, but you just you have to keep an eye on who's most affected, right? And then and, and it, th- this is the great thing in developing countries, oftentimes with very little money, if you do it effectively, you can just have a huge impact. Yes. And that's, that's, that's part of the attraction of the work. You can just dream up projects that here would cost millions and they're 25 to 50 grand. You just get a lot of mileage and, and save lives. And that's, that's pretty good. You can feed a lot of people in India with 50 you, grand, can't you? You can. You really can. Yeah. Well, clearly I could talk to you about this forever, but I know you have a planet to go solve and a, <laughs> uh, a 10 to 15% revenue target to go, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to go get sure. done. Uh, I want to thank you for writing this wonderful book. I love that the word honor is in the title. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, sometimes I can feel like honor is dying in the business world. And so uh, I, I, the book is amazing and I love the title. Is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap? I think, Christopher, we, we captured, I really enjoyed our, our conversation and the depth to which it, you, you took it. And, you know, with your perspective and the conversations you have with many other business leaders, it's just, it just makes me optimistic, right? I just think there is room for progress. And last year wasn't all that great in many respects, right? And, you know, you're thinking of uh, where's this planet going to go? Just getting feedback from you and hearing that there is in fact or reminding myself that there is a movement that there's a large portion of the population that actually thinks there is hope and that you can even use that you can use business to make improvements that just makes my day so thanks for giving me an opportunity to to talk about it and great to see that you're a fan of leonard cohen too so that's that's good to know I, I see him in the back. Well, I'm a huge Leonard Cohen fan. Me too. Me too. I, uh, I grew up in Montreal, Canada, and so okay. he's been one of my heroes my whole life. He, he is too. He was, you know, as, as people start checking out when, when he left two years ago, I was really sad. I'd rediscovered him just a few years ago. He, he hung out at our party, so to speak, coming on from the, 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 the turntable. And I just, I, I love him very much, just the way he developed. Anyways, so here's to, here's to our heroes. Huh? Well, hey, one other quick, one quick sure. story about Leonard Cohen. It's sort of interesting how tragedy can turn into something wonderful. So late in his life, in his 70s, he discovers that his manager of many years had been ripping him off. Yep. And I don't know if all the money was gone, but most of it was gone. And he's an artist. He's a poet. You know, he, he, he lived as a monk for many years. He didn't pay, pay much attention to the money. And so in his 70s, he was broke. And he hadn't toured for a very long time. And so he had to go make some money. Yep. And so he decided to go back out on tour. And uh, my wife, Carrie, and I went to go see him in Oakland at the Paramount Theater. Oh, I missed this. When was, when was this, Christopher? Oh, shit. 2000. I have the poster downstairs. It would have been maybe 2008, 2009, yep. okay. somewhere in there. Yep. Maybe 2010, somewhere in that range. Yep. And first of all, for me to see him live, I'd never seen him live because he didn't really tour anymore. That in itself, he was incredible. Yep. And he played for 
well over three hours. He didn't want to leave the stage. And there was this real element. It got very clear. He didn't have to say it. That he knew he was towards the end of his life. And he knew he only had a few more of these left. And he was going to soak in every moment. Yep. And he was going to deliver everything to his fans. And it was, it was, it, it's, I know it sounds kooky, but it was, it was magical because everybody there, starting with Leonard, the entire band, the crew, and everybody in the audience knew we were witnessing a master at his greatest yep. and that there weren't going to be very many more nights like this. And he died a, a couple years later and that ended up being his last tour. It's I, I can I can relate. I, I missed him while he was on tour. I was traveling, but his 2009 concert in London, which is was the same trip, just I have me, the record downstairs. It, I have the vinyl record of it. It makes me cry. On, honestly, I feel exactly the same way. This this guy, he had talked about hardship. He joked about it, right? He just just wrote down the list of drugs he had been taking lately. But he just this this with just a lot of humor. And, and a little self-deprecating, and then he just does an outstanding job on the music. He, that, that album just kills me. I'm going to listen to it this afternoon. It, um, I listen to him all the time, and I read his poetry it, as well. And, um, yeah, there's, there's only one Leonard Cohen, and so, yeah. There's only one? You, you've seen, I'm sure, Leonard and Marian. There's a documentary. There's actually several out on. We just yes. watched them last year. It just, it, it's amazing. And he, I, we've known him. He was just the dark, sad guy singing at our party, so to speak. This was in the early seventies, and he just wow. he just came back. I saw him once in Cologne in concert decades ago, and I I thought he got a little boring, and then we rediscovered him just like you did after he came back to tour. And it just he's got such power. Anyways, here's to Leonard. Here's to Leonard Cohen. Yeah. God bless you, and God bless your amazing company, and and our friend Leonard as well. <laughs> Thanks very much for, for having me and, and for the great conversation, Christopher. Thank you so much. And please come back anytime. I will. Take care, man. Well, there he is, Dr. Giro Lizon, Um, And I'm so glad to have had this conversation. I learned a lot on this episode. I hope you did as well. If you know somebody who would love to hear from uh, Dr. Giro, why not share this episode with them? Chances are the uh, Oddcast listening um, application you're, <laughs> you're listening to us on right now has a share feature and you can send it to them. And uh, we deeply appreciate your social media shares as well. Jiro's new book is out and it's amazing. I highly recommend it. I enjoyed it deeply. It's called Honor Thy Label. Dr. Bruner's unconventional journey to a clean, green, and ethical supply chain. Check it out wherever you get legendary books. Now today, more than ever, every business needs every advantage they can to succeed. And that's where NetSuite by Oracle comes in, the world's number one cloud business system. NetSuite is engineered to help you streamline your mission-critical business processes from financials to supply chain to order management to billing and beyond. NetSuite's ERP gives your business the power to manage every penny with precision. And NetSuite is trusted by over 24,000 customers around the world because NetSuite is the platform for building legendary business. Check out netsuite.com slash different today and schedule your free product tour. That's netsuite.com slash different. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Thousands of IT, security, and business professionals rely on Splunk to bring together disparate data. 
data in motion, data at rest, structured data, unstructured data, it doesn't matter. Splunk drives data outcomes across security, IT, DevOps, and frankly, all across your business. So get empowered to bring data to everything. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. That's splunk.com slash D2E. All right. We would like to thank one more time the legendary Dr. Giro Lizo. Thank you so much. Honor thy label is out. Also want to say a big thank you to Olivia Decker for helping us put this episode together. Thank you, Olivia. My friends at OneLifeFullyLived.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out. The number one, LifeFullyLived.org. My friends at Bottleneck.online are the leaders in dedicated distance assistance. If you need an assistant who's nowhere near you and is never going to get near you, check out Bottleneck.online today. And if you're in Silicon Valley and you're in the B2B space, visit Autre.net. Autrenet has been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net. And don't forget to go to lockhead.com and subscribe to Category Pirates, the newsletter authority on category design. And if you can make a difference with a donation to a food bank, a nonprofit, a faith-based organization, uh, please do so. There's so many in our world that are hurting right now. And if you can uh, donate a few shekels, why not do it right now? All right, I need to warn you. That the creators of this oddcast were uh, absolutely consuming libations, and uh, this oddcast does get produced in a studio that does contain nuts. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this oddcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. Please, before acting on anything you heard today, consult your doctor, lawyer, accountant, shaman, mother, bartender, sister, um, and anyone else you tend to. <laughs> you tend to consult don't forget this oddcast is flammable and is uh tested <laughs> and is, is never been tested on animals <laughs> we are produced and edited by the goat jason DeFilippo. check out his podcast grumpy old geeks sarah knox and jamie j do uh legendary technical execution and lockhead.com show notes by uh, gm simon listen to the tragically hip also check out the conscious vc podcast with Naveen Chada and myself. New episodes rolling out now. Check out Conscious VC, wherever you get legendary podcasts. Please be kind and rewind this tape when you hand it back. Thank you very much to all of our healthcare heroes, our frontline workers, our military vets and families. And uh, hey, get out of the passing lane. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Carson Sweet, CEO of Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carsey, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay safe, take good care of each other, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your difference.